0: Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. I put off doing any disease-related shows for a long time, but with vaccinations all the rage, I thought it was time to take a look at discussions of public health in the revolutionary era, specifically public attitudes towards vaccinations' mother, inoculations the dreaded disease of smallpox. Before its successful eradication in the 20th century, smallpox was one of humanity's great killers. As Americans today debate the role of government in managing public health crises during a time of mass pandemic, I thought it would be relevant to look at how the founding generation approached these issues. Listeners craving New England content can rest assured, there's plenty of that here. The region was a hotspot, both of disease and of inoculation during this period. So please join us, possibly as you travel to your own vaccination site or recover from the mild side effects of whatever you choose to take. At Mainly History, we wish a plague on none of your houses. Let's do this. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Werman, Associate Professor of History at Central Michigan University. His forthcoming book, Contagion of Liberty is due out by Johns Hopkins University Press, hopefully in the spring of 2022. Werman also received the 2008 Walter Muir Whitehill Award for his article in the New England Quarterly, The Siege of Castle Pox. He's also appeared on C-SPAN, NPR, and in the Boston Globe. Andrew, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you,
1: Ian, it's good to be here and to talk to a fellow Walter Muir Whitehill Award winner. It's true, it's true. <laughs> we had a good run at, at Northwestern getting getting winners of, of that particular prize. It's a, it's a big prize in early American history. Anyway. It's true.
0: You are one of those people whose work becomes timely due to mass tragedy and so I want to begin by asking you how it feels to be in that club of historians whose work becomes tragically relevant.
1: (laughs) It was not something that that I thought about you know I was writing a dissertation and it turned into a book it's been a long, a long project. And I was writing it really with an audience in mind that I assumed, just like I hadn't, had never experienced a quarantine or a shutdown due to disease. For people that had never checked the newspaper to see how many cases of the disease had come and if their neighbors had gotten it and that sort of thing. And that's a feeling that you get in the 18th century. And so all of a sudden, you're right. The, the interest in in the project and and what I'm doing has has increased. How do I feel about it? I, I I suppose I'm okay with taking some advantage of it and trying to promote my my own book during the pandemic, although it's it's ending. But I feel like what the book argues and what it says about, the need for public health and the calls for equality and the uh, necessity of, you know, if you want to end an epidemic, you have to include the poor, you have to think f- big collective goals. Those things were, were, were present in, in the past. They were present in the book. And then as I was thinking about what was happening today, it, I became increasingly frustrated when uh, modern America uh, needed to relearn a lot of those lessons that it, it seems like were, were just ripe for the picking from the past.
0: So you don't kind of exchange nods of recognition with scholars of like Nixon and impeachment
1: yeah, I mean, there's a market in that right you the the <laughs> Washington post the um, their made by history section, which includes these kind of relevant stories from historians writing in the past and and things. But no, I don't think I'm in that that club yet. There is a club of disease historians who are all, you know, shaking their fists in frustration at the world. and'm I'm, I'm kind of in that club.
0: Okay. What sorts of major contagious diseases were prevalent in the 18th century in North America?
1: Eighteenth century doctors and just average, Americans would have been familiar with a host of diseases on a very personal sort of level. A doctor could tell, you know, just from the sound of of a cough, whether a patient might have consumption or tuberculosis or if this is diphtheria or if this is something else, a common cold. Uh, By looking at the throat, they could tell you if this is scarlet fever. And some of the kinds of disease diagnoses that modern doctors don't have to worry about because of the introductions of uh, antibiotics and, and uh, vaccines and some things like that. So they were dealing in the 18th century with, with measles, with diphtheria, with dysentery, the intestinal disease that can be caused by a host of different things. Southern colonies would see more malaria and yellow fever, although there could be yellow fever epidemics in the, in the summertime as far north as Boston. But the big one, the disease that was the most feared, they called it the... Uh, the sovereign disorder or the king of terrors was smallpox. That was the disease that made people w- want changes to, to really seek new laws and protections from this disease. And it's because it had a high fatality rate if you, if you caught smallpox, depending on, on the time and place, sometimes there were more virulent strains between 15 and 20 percent. Of, of people who caught it died there were no asymptomatic cases if you if you got smallpox you were going to get very sick and and be disfigured have spots the those pustules so just to explain smallpox a bit it starts off like a like a fever a few days after contracting it somewhat like COVID-19 smallpox is spread through the air through water vapor people speaking or coughing after you get it You would experience uh, a fever, a backache. But after about seven or 10 days, those trademark pox start to form and start to push through the skin past nerve endings. It was very painful, and they'd collect on the hands and the face and the feet, usually the extremities first, sometimes all over the body. And even if you survived it, if you had one of those hard cases, you'd be scarred for life. Some people were blinded by it. Uh, That was the disease that was most feared in the 18th century.
0: And how long did symptoms last for most people?
1: After getting the, the spots would start to appear, the whole course of the disease was generally over in about three to four weeks. And that's how long, if you, if, if you caught smallpox, you would have to be quarantined for um, about three weeks. After, in, in the start of week two into week three, the, the pox would start to reduce, they'd scab over, start to heal. You'd know if you were, you were in good shape by then.
0: And I've I remember I've read testimonies where sometimes patients would like they'd scab all the way over and then they they'd roll over and like their whole layer of skin would sort of sheath off like
1: it's good I hope somebody's eating lunch or or mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. having a snack right now but yeah th- no the, it could be really nasty John Adams described like uh, seeing a case like that of, of what they called confluent smallpox where the where the pox sort of joined together in mass into one massive pock on the on the body. And that could, you know, sort of flay a person's skin. Um, it was those cases that would be the highest fatality rates. Ordinary people might get away with a, if they had a regular case of, of smallpox with dozens of pox, individual pox on the, on the body and not have those really awful situations.
0: So the, the variola virus scientists have nailed down how and why it's transmitted. In the 18th century, what was the common and then maybe expert understanding, uh, if there was a meaningful difference, right, about the, the cause and transmission of smallpox? Yeah,
1: you're right. It was the scientific name is is variola. It's a, a really big virus, as viruses go. I should say that once you became sickened, once you uh, were infected with smallpox, if you survived it, then you you got lifelong immunity. Your body's B cells would recognize it in the future, so you could never get it again. That was the only sort of salvation of, of smallpox. Is once you had it once, you, you couldn't get it again. How did 18th century Americans or British people? Um, they didn't. They didn't know it was caused by a virus but they understood that it was contagious. Uh, enough experience had shown that people got sick when they were around other people who had smallpox. They didn't necessarily know it was spread through the air, through one's breath. They knew that was a little bit dangerous, but they often thought it spread on surfaces, that it, maybe it would spread on blankets, as in the, the Fort Pitt, case right. or maybe it would it would spread on paper they thought it often had to travel on a on a surface on some goods on on the floor something like that they, they didn't really imagine that there were microorganisms spreading it through the air although that was theorized uh cotton mather thought that animalcules as he put it tiny and uh, tiny little animals were were the ones behind it and yeah he he basically got it right they understood that it was contagious generally that was better understood than a lot of other diseases. Just because they could see it so readily, there there were no invisible cases of smallpox. So just with the naked eye, they could tell that if a patient had it and they were in a house, the other people in that house would catch it. But the neighbors wouldn't necessarily. And so they could tell that it was person-to-person connection. Now, later in the 18th century, especially and into the 19th century, there were some changing ideas of, of disease. And some of these were persistent before, an idea that smallpox and other diseases just arrive from the atmosphere, that there's a a certain condition in in the air generally that would create a miasma bad air right you associate that maybe more with yellow fever but there were i was thinking
0: malaria and the idea that like swamp air was bad and such
1: there were some i some theories about smallpox being caused by bad air that went against direct experience your average american would believe smallpox was contagious person to person that quarantines were necessary and that sort of thing there were some who were opposed to quarantines uh opposed to those health laws we can maybe get into that who subscribed to miasma theory because if you if you believe that it's just bad air in the atmosphere, then you're fairly helpless against it. Your quarantine won't work. So that was there, uh, but the average expectation, most people uh, understood that smallpox was a contagious disease where they had questions about other diseases like malaria, yellow fever, and things like that.
0: Your work is about the, the question of inoculation and public health and relating to smallpox. When we think about the at the turn of the 18th century in towns like Boston, there was a, a good amount of kind of collective knowledge and memory of earlier contagious diseases, above all the plague. And so even though the bubonic plague was dying out, I think the last big outbreak in Western Europe was in Marseille, like 1721 or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, the plague shaped a lot of people's experience and, and expectations for what should happen when there was a big Sickness, based on their experience with the plague, what kinds of expectations did communities have of their of their leaders, and what sort of public health measures that we would consider that to be understood? Did they did they expect uh, even before thinking about smallpox?
1: That's a great question. So smallpox sort of arrived with Americans in in the New World. So smallpox was always a concern. But you're right that the that the public health laws that were developed to combat smallpox were sort of rewrites of what had been used in England to combat the plague. Quarantines, stopping ships in the port, inspecting the ships. If, if there was any suspicion about a ship coming from an infected place, then the, the ship could be quarantined, the goods on it, the individual sailors held back. And there were rules established for local governments, especially in port cities, that would do it and in individual towns there were attempts to isolate anyone with smallpox either by cordoning off their own house so if if there was a suspected smallpox case the selectmen the the kind of city council would fence off a person's home and put red flags outside it the the red was a a symbol that had been used during the plague and to tell people not to go into that house. Let's let them get through it on their own. No one was allowed to come in or or out of the household. Uh, They would also do other laws that today seem arbitrary or horrible, but again, they thought that it spread on surfaces. So one of the things that towns would do before and even even after inoculation was if disease was present town meetings would be called they would enact an ordinance to kill all the dogs in town sometimes it said stray dogs other times it was just all of them because they thought that dogs roaming around might might carry smallpox on their fur this was something that was also done during plague well the plague
0: um, that makes sense because of the fleas, even though they didn't yeah. know it at the time so that
1: it really doesn't make sense for smallpox because and Animals, smallpox right. might as well be called human pox. It, it's yeah. only, it's <laughs> yeah. not uh, transmissible to, to animals. So it made no sense. Poor puppy dogs. But did it, they,
0: they clearly knew that the plague was different than smallpox. But aside from inoculation, which we'll get to in a moment, were there any other major differences that you would say in, in public policy between those are probably the two biggest killers during the early modern period?
1: They were consciously writing that you know the, that smallpox was worse. They were trying to uh, get people's attention to smallpox. That, that smallpox was this new killer, and you know, they would kind of write it that way. So the 17th century had the plague. The 18th century is the century of smallpox, and so they didn't worry in the colonies much about plague. Virginia passed a an anti. Plague law. They didn't have a smallpox law on the on the books for for a long time in the 18th century, um, but they had anti-plague laws. So there were some some worries about them, but there were not plague outbreaks, as far as I know, in the uh, 17th or 18th century America.
0: There were claims that there was a big pandemic from 1616 to 1619 along the northeastern coast among the indigenous people, and some scholars have argued that was a plague. Uh, well, they argued
1: the, that it was a plague, right? Sure. Oh, but that, like, some have with...
0: argued that it was the plague as well. It's tricky, though, because right, clearly, a lot of early modern sources just talk about they use plague in the generic sense.
1: It can be really difficult to know when yeah. reading sources in the past, and that's true in the ancient world and the plague of Athens and all of those things. Exactly what illness they're they're talking about?
0: So, of course, a really important difference is with smallpox. Different people figured out inoculation. Could you please explain what is inoculation?
1: Smallpox came to Western Europe fairly late by world standards. It originated in Africa, probably spread to India, the Middle East and China. And that knowledge that once you have smallpox, you're immune to it for the rest of your life, it occurred to many people in in different places that if you were to control when you got the disease, that that could be beneficial. So exposing children to the disease early would mean they would have a lifetime free of disease. At some point, and I think this was discovered independently in different places, there are claims in India and China and Africa, they started purposefully inserting smallpox matter, the, the pus, the white stuff from, the, from a smallpox patient, just a tiny little bit of it. They would scratch the surface of, of the skin, put a tiny bit of that matter into it, patch it up. And that would convey a mild case of smallpox because it came through the skin rather than being inhaled into the lungs. That's a treatment that's unique to smallpox it worked. Um, it, it did give a mild case of smallpox to the person who, who had it. The fatality rate was much lower for inoculation. And as I said, so this was developed in, in China and in India and in Africa. It was known in these places. Smallpox comes later to Europe. They're more concerned about the plague until the late 17th and in, into the early 18th century. They have waves of smallpox and they start learning about inoculation from other sources. The Royal Society in London starts hearing of and publishing accounts of inoculation in China, in and especially in Turkey. These Constantinople, accounts. right? With Constantinople? With Turkish women? Yeah, that 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 Turkish women are famed for their beauty and famed for inoculating old women would, would inoculate young women in in Turkey the British ambassador in Constantinople Montague his his wife uh, Lady Mary Montague w- writes letters about this procedure has her son I think inoculated in that fashion in Constantinople has another child inoculated back in in London in 1721 so people are in the in the British Atlantic world are starting to learn learn about inoculation, in some cases, centuries after people in other parts of the world have known about it. But they start learning about it, claiming it as their own idea at this time. In America, the most famous case is with Cotton Mather in Massachusetts. So in 1706, Reverend Cotton Mather in, in Boston, his parishioners, Give him as a gift a a human person, an enslaved African man named Onesimus, and Mather has the wherewithal at some point to ask Onesimus whether he's ever had smallpox before. And you get the idea from from, or you can if you kind of read between the lines of, of Mather's writings about uh, Onesimus, that Onesimus must have been a very smart fellow and he asks have you ever had smallpox and Onesimus says well yes and no and Mather prompts him and and eventually Onesimus tells him that he's had this procedure done where a tiny bit of smallpox matter was put in his arm and it gave him a mild case and that it's common where he comes from in and in uh Africa, probably East Africa is what, what what I figure. Sometimes you hear Onesimus is from West Africa. It's, it's not all that clear where he's from or where he picked it up. That knowledge does not seem universal among Africans in, a, in, a, in America. But Mather asks around and a couple of other African slaves confirms this. And so when a decade later, when the Royal Society starts publishing these letters from Turkey about inoculation, Mather writes a letter back to London saying, oh yeah, I, I know all about that. Let me, let me tell you what I know, and conveys the story of Onesimus in Africa. And then when smallpox hits in 1721, when Boston has an outbreak, Mather says, we need to do this. We need to inoculate people here. We need, it, it's time to, to go with this method that I've learned from Onesimus.
0: When epidemics like smallpox hit in Boston in 1721, what authorities did people turn to for guidance or to uh, to take charge during these kinds of health emergencies?
1: That's what makes 1721 so interesting, because all of those questions about who's in charge get thrown up in the air, because it's not, it's really not supposed to be cotton mather and it's definitely not supposed to be an african slave telling people what they should do during an epidemic so it, it things get turned upside down ordinarily it's the selectmen of of a town the sort of governing body whatever council is in charge of a community or a port like boston they they've been in charge of enforcing quarantines and existing quarantine laws and things like that because inoculation is is a new idea there aren't existing laws in 1721 so they don't know there's not much of a role so mathers advocating it he's a religious authority He's still battling his his old reputation as as a supporter of the Salem witch trials. Thirty years before, there is one university-educated doctor in Boston, educated in Edinburgh, a man named William Douglas, who finds all of this an affront to him and to science. He says, "Look, we can't inoculate just because the idea is out there. It needs to, it needs further testing." He doesn't trust the African medical knowledge. He thinks that Africans might be using that just to, 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 to trick us, to scheme us, to get back at us for enslaving them. How can we we trust them? And further, how why would you listen to a, a minister, a religious man, instead of a man of science like me? So you've got the the town's only university doctor arguing against inoculation. And The one doctor who initially takes Mather up on it um, has been trained as an apprentice. He doesn't have a university education. That's Zabdiel Boylston. And Boylston does it. He inoculates first in his his family, then he inoculates a couple of hundred other people during this epidemic. The epidemic of 1721 is terrible. Boston has about 10,000 people at this time. Over 5,000 get infected naturally with smallpox. About 850 of those die. It's about 15% of, of those infected die. Boylston inoculated a couple hundred, 280 or so people. And there were a couple of other doctors that do it too. And of those, six die, which is fewer than 3%. So the statistical evidence sort of wins. Douglas is not keen on any of how it happened he doesn't want to give mather or nisimus any credit but at the end he starts to to realize there there's something there it did seem to work and then that gets repeated the the experiment happens again those questions about religious uh, authority you know are we playing god isn't god the one who should who who infects us and decides whether or not we become well is is inoculation tampering with god those questions really fade away because of how effective the treatment is. And Mather's effective at swatting that away. He says, well, isn't it God who gave us inoculation? Isn't it an affront to God to ignore this, this gift that we've been given?
0: one of the things i like about this story is that it challenges a lot of 21st century assumptions that the vanguard of public health is clearly led by enlightened scientists and health professionals and that ministers and religious types were clearly clinging to the past and to superstitions and standing in its way clearly we see in uh, boston in 1721 uh, whatever else one thinks of cotton mather he's the one he's the one pushing to go ahead with these inoculations
1: yeah I mean cotton Mather is the is the broken watch that's right twice a day um, it, he, <laughs> he he but to his credit, I mean he listened to an African slave and recognized the knowledge that he was being told was significant and and most people who who did that wouldn't and that's why I say that Onesimus must have been a particularly smart engaging able to to convince someone like cotton Mather that that he's actually correct on this but yeah it's it's a it's it's a terrific in, inversion and it does make you wonder you know what scientists might miss or or to remind us of our of our hubris that ideas might appear from unlikely sources
0: yeah i can also sympathize with somebody who just doesn't want to admit cotton mather is right because he was such a willful oftentimes kind of obnoxious personality in many aspects of life. When you read his his documents, he's clearly a very smart man, but I can see a, 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 peer, a contemporary of him's just wanting to be like, oh, I can't believe Cotton Mather is right about something. Oh man. It's
1: true. They they were so, Mather had a lot of crazy ideas about how health worked and the and the body worked and the soul and a lot of really objectionable ideas. But, but yeah, on, on, on this, he, he gets it. And there was frustration.
0: So the heart of your work is on the, the revolutionary era. To put it straightforwardly, a massive smallpox pandemic across North America coincided with the American Revolution. Did English-speaking North Americans, did they expect a democratic republic to address public health differently than a monarchy?
1: That's a really interesting question. They didn't necessarily know at the start of the epidemic, which started in 1773, that they were going to become a a democratic republic. They were making these similar demands on their monarchy, but these were things that they were arguing really at local levels. They were hoping that their town would provide inoculations, that their state or colonial government would make things easier, would allow further access, that they expected the government, in, increasingly as, as inoculation became more popular, that local governments shouldn't just provide for quarantines, but they should also allow, uh, they should also regulate in, inoculations and provide access to it, whether that's building kind of public private hospitals or whether that's doing what's called general inoculations where they would shut down the whole city or town for a couple of months while everyone inoculates at once that happened in in Boston and a few other places they expected this to be part of their government they had town meetings about it it was very democratic the demand was bottom up if rich people were inoculating they could potentially spread smallpox to the poor. So a number of times when we can talk about some of these examples, that happens. And there are riots and protests happening because people are wanting, not they're not anti-inoculation. They're not opposed to the efficacy of inoculation. They want it too. And, they, and, and otherwise they're threatened. So they do expect this. During the revolution itself, there's a tremendous bottom up pressure from ordinary Americans and ordinary soldiers in the Continental Army for George Washington and the Continental Congress to allow or provide for inoculation of, of soldiers, which ends up including a lot of civilians too. So yeah, it's, it's, it's demanded and it's expected. The demands would have, would have still happened in a monarchy. The other thing that's interesting, the difference between Britain and America is that they were very different disease environments in Britain, which was more urban and smallpox does most of its damage as an urban disease. Smallpox was largely endemic in the cities. It was ever present. It was always there. You would get it. Most people got it as children. Many people died from smallpox in, in these cities, but as you, as you grew up and people survived it, it was just present in the cities, whereas it's epidemic in the colonies. it would They could prevent it for long stretches of time, then it would arrive and sometimes it would burst into an epidemic and then they would contain it again and it would go away. So it was a far fewer Ameri- as a percentage of colonial Americans had had smallpox than, than they did in England. So they feared it in England, but it was a different kind of disease in both places.
0: Have you found regional differences in how, say, South Carolina or Massachusetts and then maybe even the District of Maine handled smallpox and public health during these years? The major difference between
1: smallpox in a place like Massachusetts or Virginia or South Carolina was the presence of slavery, where these... of racial geographies. In South Carolina, they did inoculate in Charleston. There were mass inoculation efforts in 1738 and 1760, but it was never as general as it was in Boston, in part because inoculations were expensive, doctors expected to be paid, and masters of slaves, plantation owners, sometimes wanted to inoculate their slaves, it would make sense. They would make them less susceptible to disease, but it was expensive. And doing so, not only the the cost, the procedure itself, you would have to quarantine these enslaved people for a month or more, which which meant they weren't working. Uh, There was also, you know, a 1% chance of death. Others would become disfigured or have lifelong disabilities that a slave owner would have to take care of. So many slave owners in the South, this is Virginia and South Carolina chiefly, chose to avoid inoculation. They would would do the best they could to quarantine off their, their plantations and keep people separate. But there was this huge group of people, enslaved Africans, who were largely uninoculated, and you know there's irony there because Onesimus of course in in Boston was the one who introduced it and they're largely being prevented from it. Cotton Mather another another interesting point from Cotton Mather and William Douglas both thought that inoculation would be useful for uh, slavers before the Middle Passage. They recommended that slave ships inoculate their human cargos before bringing them to America. This doesn't happen. And of course, they're not, they're not advocating for ending slavery, but the people who are enslavers are, are greedy just by their, by their nature, and that would cost extra time, extra money, and they largely don't do it. So white Americans in, in Charleston favor inoculation. But the problem is, if they inoculate generally or allow inoculation to be totally open, the fear is that it would start an epidemic among the slaves. So you see inoculation much less practiced in Virginia and in South Carolina, even though it's sometimes there. They understand the efficacy of it, but they're afraid that it will spread among the the susceptible population. Oh, in so, Maine. So uh, oh, yes. you, you mentioned Maine. So we'll go up to Maine. So I said that yes, smallpox does <laughs> does its damage as an urban disease. Maine was was not particularly urban in the 18th century. So most people living in in Maine didn't have to worry about it very much. If you were in a small town or a rural town, you were paying attention to what was happening in Boston. You knew that Boston was shut down for smallpox or that they were inoculating there. And people in Maine would have read those accounts of inoculation, but they, they didn't need to inoculate. The, the, the threat of smallpox was not particularly high. If you were wealthy enough and you were going to be traveling or you were going to travel to Boston or travel to London, you could get inoculated there or in another location in New York or something like that. And that's what wealthy people sometimes did. But there wasn't a lot of inoculation or threat of of smallpox in Maine. If you look at Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's book, um, which I think uh, Midwife's Tale is the best 18th century source for medicine in in Maine there's no entry in in the index i checked to make to cover my base for for smallpox <laughs> it's it's not a terribly significant threat later as the communities grow portland after after its its founding and has more commercial sh- uh, shipping after the revolution does build a uh, an inoculation hospital facility on an island on Bangs Island.
0: Well, and of course, the British burned most of the city down in October of 1775 of Old Falmouth, which was the busiest port city. That would have reduced any sort of concentration of people for those early years of the war when the, the smallpox was worse.
1: Yes, I think that's right. And so some of the worst years of, of smallpox were were after that. And certainly people in Maine were... were watching smallpox as it happens. There's the mm. Canadian campaign um, where Continental Army marches to Quebec to try to uh, invade Canada and, and smallpox breaks out among, among those, those troops, a terrible disaster. And I imagine that Mainers were paying attention to that. So they were certainly concerned about it, but as far as I know, there may be some, some research out for Maine historians to look at. There weren't significant efforts at that time.
0: For revolutionary Americans, did inoculation present a a conflict between individual rights and community protection?
1: Yes. Inoculation was becoming so popular that people were reading accounts, reading that it works, especially wealthy people in the colonies. If you were having children and and the children were going off to Europe or going somewhere uh, where there might be uh, smallpox, if they were going to study in Philadelphia or something, they would want their children to be inoculated. The problem, as I've said, is if you're inoculating, the person, the patient who's inoculating had to be quarantined for a month. And there were often breaches in, in quarantine. If, if your neighbor inoculates, you would either want them to stop, you might plead to your local government to to stop them because they might start an epidemic, or you might appeal to your local government to allow you to inoculate too. We need to let everyone inoculate at once. So in times where individuals would want to inoculate, so there was a, a case that I talk about in, in Virginia, in Norfolk, where inoculation was not strictly illegal, it just wasn't Done. People understood that it was effective, but they used quarantine methods and containment and largely kept smallpox out of Virginia. Um, When a group of wealthy individuals in Norfolk hired a doctor to inoculate a few prominent families there were protests from ordinary people in in Norfolk gathered outside with a beating drum demanding that they put a stop to inoculation. And other historians that have looked at that event in Norfolk or similar events in the colonies have argued that the crowd is anti-inoculation. They're anti-science. They don't get it. They were backwards and behind. And this is just not the case. Uh, They recognized that by inoculating without the consent of of the public, they were becoming a nuisance. They were a public danger. And in this Norfolk case, the crowd forces these wealthy residents to march to the public pest house, the public uh, building that's meant for infectious people, rather than this private home. They're taken there. There's a, kind of a series of riots. Eventually, the private house that they were trying to inoculate in gets burned down. But later, they agree to a general inoculation, uh, an inoculation of of everybody. To do that takes a lot more regulation, a lot more government work to prepare a whole city to inoculate at once. And we see that in Boston in 1764. There's a general inoculation where 5,000 people in, in Boston, the entire city shuts down. They inoculate at once. In 1764, the, the city government of, of Boston agrees to pay for the inoculations of the poor, they reimburse doctors who inoculate poor patients. There's about a 1,000 people that get inoculated for free. The city government's also paying for food for the poor. They're paying bakers to bake bread for the poor during the inoculations. There are all sorts of policies and payments going on. It gets to be very costly, but They recognize that letting everyone through this disease at once gets the disease over with. It helps everyone. It doesn't linger in the poor. It was extremely effective. Other cases where singular groups try to inoculate, there's a case in Marblehead, Massachusetts in 1774, where a private group builds a hospital and locals end up burning it to the ground. That's the siege of Castle Pox. Uh, I call it. And it's the, it's the same scenario. The, the public, ordinary Americans wanted to have a town meeting to organize a general inoculation or create rules and regulations that would prevent quarantines or, or outbreaks. And when those were violated, when people took it upon themselves and, and tried to inoculate without the consent of their neighbors, trouble Happens. So, in, in that big way of answering your question, you know, my, my book is called The Contagion of Liberty. And there were these kind of competing ideas of liberty, but it was clear that for most Americans, liberty meant the consent of your of your neighbors you it, it meant a kind of permission to do something if everyone agreed on it it wasn't just a free license to do as you as you wanted that was a recipe for for making your neighbors very upset
0: huh that is a different interpretation than the Gadsden flag waving gentlemen who sometimes stand on the corner would have me believe about about revolutionary America. Fascinating. It's precisely the opposite, <laughs> sort of
1: liberate Michigan crowd and that public health laws impose on one's freedom rather than public health laws securing freedom is how they would most commonly think of it. Although, as I sort of alluded to earlier, there were some in colonial America that fought quarantine laws and these mass inoculations were a pain if you were a a wealthy person who's in one of these private hospitals you you know you want to get yours you don't care that the the rest of the public thinks they should have it at the same time
0: is it bad that i i kind of wish that the rich people who cut in line i wish they had to go to the pest house to do this
1: (laughs) it's so interesting because (laughs) there were these public pest houses the one in norfolk um, was was created in after uh, Boston's 1764 epidemic. It was it was 1765, and anyone could go to the pest house. It tended to. Uh, the most most common people in the pest house tended to be infected slaves in in Norfolk, and so one of the reasons that these wealthy Norfolk people that were forced to the pest house they 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 write this article in the in the Virginia Gazette, you know really uh, wailing about the the abuse that they've had, and it's in part because they were having to to share a, a space that had been inhabited by black people, and they make that that very clear that that was one of the reasons that they wanted to inoculate privately rather than a in a public facility. And there's you know a, a lot to say there about how public health works in a pluralistic society. And there's so much the people that are getting early. Everybody needs to get vaccinated, right? And that was the case in in the 18th century too, but there are all, always these issues of, of class and, and when, when we talk about medicine and immunizations.
0: Any talk about contagious diseases in early America, we need to, of course, uh, talk about the indigenous experience. We mentioned earlier the, the Fort Pitt incident. This is one of those things that like everybody thinks they know about early American history and have widely shaped the discourse. But it was kind of unusual. Could you actually first just mention what that was and what did and did not happen?
1: Okay, I'll give you sort of what I think, and I, and it, it is that my my book mostly deals with uh, the the public health in in the cities in, in colonial America. But I did have to write about about this event the in Fort Pitt, and there was a general understanding among Europeans, not even the English, but also the, the the Spanish, that smallpox was uniquely devastating to Native Americans. And they had witnessed devastating epidemics in Mexico and in probably in New England, the the 1617 to 1619 Epidemic, and in a lot of these these histories of these events, and and what contemporaries wrote during them, they're they're downright happy about them, right? They say that that God has proceeded to devastate the 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 Indians to make room for the Europeans. So there's a general assumption moving forward, even into the 18th century, that smallpox was uniquely devastating for. Native Americans, and that inoculation wasn't well suited for them, that there are never uh, sustained attempts to inoculate Native Americans, even British Indian agents aren't in the 18th century telling, you know, the Iroquois or or whatever Indian nation that they ought to inoculate. They don't, they restrict it from them. And John Adams is writing, you know, the army in Canada got got smallpox and that that's terrible it was but the only only saving grace of that epidemic was that the indians caught it too so there were these you know terrible ideas about smallpox and sort of cheering when indians got sick now the ev- event in fort pitt is uniquely dastardly so this is at the end of the french and indian war 1763 uh, the commanding general of British forces in North America is Jeffrey Amherst. And they've signed a treaty, uh, Treaty of Paris, ending the French and Indian War, except the Native Americans were not party to it, and they're still fighting. It's Pontiac's Rebellion, but widespread Native resistance to this British victory. And in Fort Pitt, uh, what's now Pittsburgh, Smallpox broke out in the fort among soldiers in the, in the fort, and letters go out from Fort Pitt and to Fort Pitt asking if it would be possible to send out smallpox-infected blankets. And in uh, Amherst's words, to see if I can get the quote right, uh, he hoped that they would extirpate the execrable race, so that they were going to take smallpox blankets out of the hospital and give them to Native Americans in hopes that it would spread a disease. The intention is there. The the genocidal intent is accurate. They're they're writing these things in a very direct way, much more direct than John Adams sort of saying, well, at least smallpox got the Indians as good as it got us, a much more intentional, direct way. Did they or didn't they is the question, and historians have talked about it. They did intend to do it. We've talked earlier that uh, early Americans thought that smallpox had to be spread on on a surface like a blanket it's not that clear if it would if that would Mm. be an effective way of spreading the disease like it was during the revolution smallpox was everywhere in 1763 the native americans had already been been struck by it they were experiencing it outside the fort already and there were some assumptions made in the fort Pitt case that i think people have overlooked one is that if uh, it sort of assumes that the native americans would be dopes in that situation that they would just happily say okay we'll take your smallpox your your hospital blankets right? right they know about smallpox they they know it's dangerous they know not to trust the british people they're at war with them also the emissaries that the native americans would send to the fort are likely people who are already immune to the disease they've already experienced it in the delaware nation and and others so they were probably already immune so they probably weren't that susceptible and if they weren't they probably didn't transmit it but we could also assume if you're given blankets from a fort that the natives may have washed them first i mean it, uh, that that idea that it would automatically work uh, it it gives you some uh, it shows you what little English people thought of Native Americans. I don't think it would have been a, a terribly effective way of starting an epidemic. No other epidemics, and I've studied a lot of them,
0: are started by blankets. So it is hard to, t- to trace too, as you said, there are so many smallpox outbreaks ricocheting around the Eastern half of the continent at this time in different places that pinning it down to a single cause is pretty tough anyway.
1: It's impossible, right? There, there there, aren't clear enough records. And even, you know, if you think about COVID-19 or something today, it's, it's really hard to pin down the moment someone got sick or who they got it from. And so the lesson from that case, we can learn a lot about Jeffrey Amherst and his terrible intentions and the intentions of the British military, which in some ways weren't all that different from the thoughts of, average europeans who were who were lusting after native lands
0: besides on the the west of the appalachians there were indigenous residents in new england who were oftentimes fighting in the in the continental army were these people particularly i'm thinking of like the the wampanoag in massachusetts were they inoxylated at all
1: probably i i don't know that for sure in the, the records of inoculations during the war are not rates, in part because they thought that uh, smallpox could be carried on on paper. So a lot of hospital records and things weren't kept, they were were burned. There are a few lists that I would look at, but they would just list names. I don't think I have seen an obvious Native American name in there, but they weren't excluded from it. So I would imagine that there were inoculations happening. It wasn't that uh, there were no Native Americans inoculated, they were kept from it. I would imagine those units, if they were in the Continental Army, uh, would have been inoculated with with everybody else.
0: All right. Lightning round. It is a common wrong thing said that those who don't study the past are bound to repeat it. Of course, no historian believes this, and this is in fact it's my, my statement that I tell people is going to be, if I'm held hostage, how do you know that I'm being held hostage if I make my phone call? <laughs> and that for me is people who don't study the past are bound to repeat it. Because of course, the past is not just some sort of cookbook that we can look back and go, ah, yes, let's do this. And we'll, we'll have economic prosperity or whatever. But that said, people often, I'm sure, will, will ask you, oh, these revolutionary public health crises and epidemics you know did they did they do it too and so i'm going to ask you lightning ro- lightning round did they do it too with a variety of topics and then feel free to to weigh in with particularly juicy examples if it's a, a yes so first one did they do it too conspiracy theories surrounding outbreaks of smallpox yes
1: so anytime there's a disease, people try to figure out who was who responsible for it. Uh, and especially during the the height of the revolution, 1775, 1776, colonial Americans, George Washington among them believed that Thomas Gage in Boston, the, the commanding general, was purposefully sending out inoculated people to infect civilians and to infect the Continental Army, a bit like Fort Pitt, it is not clear that, that that happens. And there's even less evidence that that was uh, the intent. But there were many rumors about who was, was spreading the disease, that maybe inoculators themselves were spreading it to drum up business so more people would seek out inoculation and that sort of thing. So there were still conspiracy theories.
0: Yes. Okay. How about did they also have scapegoating of outsiders or foreigners or disfavored groups in society?
1: Smallpox was a little bit unique in that way in that you you weren't blamed if you got smallpox. It was so ubiquitous and so feared that there wasn't much of that that you would see with some other other diseases. Yet, as we mentioned earlier, African-Americans were often kept especially if they were they were enslaved kept from getting inoculation but in general if, if you became sick from smallpox people generally tried to help you there wasn't a kind of stigma as, as you would see with other diseases
0: how about inoculation hesitancy in the sense that oh it's actually really unsafe and it's probably going to harm my children and so I don't want you getting near us
1: That's one of the biggest. There was a a complete demand for inoculation. There was very little hesitancy if it was available and you had the consent of your community, people rushed for it. There are examples in in my book of people trying to get inoculated multiple times, which doesn't make sense. You only once get you immune for life, but people would try again if it came back to their communities. When the Continental Army, when Washington finally decides to inoculate it, none of the soldiers turned it down in my recollection. None of them were, were angry about it. It wasn't mandatory. They didn't like drag anybody and force them to people wanted it they recognized how important it was and imagine you know in some ways it's because inoculation is is contagious if you were a soldier who said no i don't want to be inoculated um, but you're sharing a A room with five other soldiers who are being inoculated, you'd be stupid not to. So there's a really high demand for it. The only resistance comes at a community level when they can't provide it for everyone. That's when you see some protests that we shouldn't have it at all. Or if there's fears that soldiers marching through a town in Virginia, you can't inoculate here soldiers because you'll spread it to our slaves and co- cause an epidemic. But they weren't hesitating about the efficacy of it. They weren't concerned about the ingredients that were used by the doctors in their preparations or anything like that. If it was offered and available, people, people were really eager
0: the founding generation gets invoked a lot these days regarding what they'd have to say about state or, or national policy on, on public health. In general, how well-informed do you find these kinds of claims?
1: Well, Sometimes I'm the one making those claims. So when, when <laughs> I do it, they're great. But you know, the, the, the founding or founders aren't a monolithic group. They had different opinions on it. So you ha- kind of have to choose who you're specifically talking about. But I would say in general, the founders and early Americans in general, especially people in local, colonial, state, governments understood as a as a duty as a responsibility of government fundamentally was protecting people from disease such as they could some diseases they didn't know enough about they would try as they as they might to provide for people but something like smallpox that they knew was was contagious and could be stopped by quarantine they would think it was a a, a terrible dereliction if if a town would ignore it so Quarantines had a, a purpose. Some colonies had very strict quarantines during times of epidemics. Some things that would strike modern Americans as violations of, of liberty. If I can give one example, the strictest colony uh, was Rhode Island. And Rhode Island passed laws during epidemics where they would have guards at every bridge and entrance to, to the colony. And if somebody came from Massachusetts or, or from Boston and had to stop at the bridge, they would keep them there for five days and check them for symptoms. So that's everybody five days, or they'd be subject to a, a fine of, of 100 pounds or some high amount. Um, oh, the
0: state did that last year. Uh, and and a, the state troopers pulled anybody over who came over from But they probably didn't.
1: Did they hold them for
0: uh, a week?
1: Anyway, no, the,
0: th- that, but that's a good point. So they just made them more promise so. to leave <laughs> or uh, quarantine if they stayed.
1: Yeah, they would. They would. They would hold them. And Ben Franklin's sister gets held, um, and she's supposed to stay for for five days, and she leaves after four, and they don't take any mercy on her. They give her the 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 fine they would also in in rhode island required the owners of all inns and taverns public houses pubs to report anyone who's a guest or, or or a patron of their facilities who looks ill and to report them to the selectmen if they didn't do that they were subjects to fines or could have their business licenses taken away in the most severe case in newport newport rhode island has no basically no smallpox outbreaks in the in the 18th century they have individual cases and when there was a case of smallpox in Newport they had this whole system where you would alert the selectmen and some some guys from the city would come to your house with a box it was a box with with holes in it almost like a like a coffin box and they would load the person in the box and take them to the pest house, which was on an island on Coasters Harbor Island, now where the Coast Guard Academy is, and take people there and isolate them. And it was extremely effective. And later, the the they, they swapped the box for like a sedan chair that they would remove infectious individuals very quickly, very strict quarantines and the kinds of things that that we just couldn't imagine doing during times of epidemic that seem like violations of liberty. And this Dr. Benjamin Waterhouse, who's important in inoculation and vaccination history was from Rhode Island and described all these things. And he would say, you would think this seems like a, a violation of, of liberty, these stri- strict public health laws, but nobody in Rhode Island sees them that way, that, that they seem like a common custom, that they're for the benefit of all the people who live in Rhode Island and they're accepted because they're they're highly infective. We don't get sick here. Boston has all those epidemics, but here in, in Newport are, are strictly. Laws protect us.
0: I love Rhode Island. It's always in the colonial and early national period, it's always on the extreme. It's always either borderline anarchy. Or or doing things like these very intense public lockdowns. They're either the most liberal laws for, for the franchise in the seventeenth century and then the least by the nineteenth century. They're just such a, a delightful bundle of of leading the pack in one way or the other. Sort of <laughs> it was equalities. fun doing
1: doing Rhode Island, but there was kind of a, a, a spectrum, a gradient from from there, other colonies with very strict laws as well. And when you're asking, you know, what would the founders think about COVID-19 epidemic. I think they would be shocked that it it reached nearly every county in the United States that there weren't more of these travel restrictions and guards at the borders cutting off states and and stopping travel at airports because they would shut down ports at the at the drop of a hat during during epidemics and sometimes post these guards and things. And so most epidemics, the the revolution was a little bit different because there were so many people, armies moving about. But most epidemics, you, you talk about the Boston epidemic or the Philadelphia epidemic, they don't spread generally because of those quarantine restrictions. And I think that's what the founders would think was most surprising was how it spread everywhere from big cities to to rural areas throughout the country that, that, that we didn't impose more domestic travel restrictions. Not saying that I would advocate for that, but I think right. that's what would surprise the founders.
0: Well, wasn't the revolutionary war pandemic one of the exceptions where it really was a giant continent-wide pandemic from Mexico City all the way into the Great Plains and all the way into to Canada.
1: Yes, but it wasn't that way all at once. The war is eight years, so it starts in 1773 and it affects Massachusetts for a couple of years, and then it kind of spreads and it hits the South. But as an active pandemic event, kind sort of a, a singular one, you can draw the, the spokes of connection. It's definitely continent-wide and driven by the movements during the revolution itself. And it does spark throughout the continent. That's Elizabeth Finn's terrific book where she moves beyond the coast to talk about the damage that smallpox did as it, as it moved west with traders and Native Americans doing horrible devastation across North America.
0: Yeah. I think it was Colin Calloway has a book on the the West and he talks about for a number of these Great Plains people in the winter counts, they're just, these are the dying years during the the revolutionary era where it's the, the peak where, you know, some of these communities get, you know, it's like 50% fifty percent of the population dies in this in this particular outbreak or something. And so I don't know if that was a particularly virulent strain or, or what made that particular outbreak so bad.
1: It does seem like the strain during the the revolution was particularly bad. Some of the mortality rates from the people who did catch natural smallpox in places like massachusetts where they kept good records were, were higher than they were in 1721 um, it does seem like it was becoming deadlier and i, I don't know I'm, I, I don't know if epidemiologists are even able to study this but as we I, I think we know that as diseases kind of bounce around and linger and they're not they don't die off they don't erati- er- eradicate them that they you know new forms might arise. I don't know if that was quite happening, but it does seem like it was a, a particularly bad strain of variola that, that moved across
0: the continent. Hmm. Contagion of Liberty is coming out hopefully in 2022. Are you working on anything that either just came out or do you have anything on your schedule for later this year that listeners should keep an eye out for?
1: The book is the big thing. So it comes out in 2022. I'm working on final edits and things now. The book covers smallpox and the demand for inoculation from 1721 through the Revolutionary War and into the discovery and first distribution uh, introduction of vaccines in the early 19th century. So that's the big, big project for now.
0: Okay, great. And is there anything that someone you know is working on that our listeners should be aware of?
1: I would recommend Ben Mutchler's book, The Province of Affliction, which covers health, illness, public health in New England throughout the colonial and into the uh, early American period from 1600 to 1800 or something like that. It's 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 a big, important book.
0: Oh wow. Yeah, this sounds great. I'm gonna have, I have not heard of this. I'm gonna have to check it out. Clearly I should have just had him on the show.
1: You should, you should <laughs> have him on the show. He might have more main specific details.
0: <laughs> sounds great, thanks. Andrew, thank you so much for stopping by.
1: Thank you, Ian, and, and thanks mainly history.
0: That's our show. We follow all public health guidelines here. But our appreciation for our fans can't be quarantined. For links to the books mentioned in this episode, and so you don't miss out on all the latest excitement, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mainly History. Join us next time as we speak with Rosemarie Zagari about the complicated relationship between the American Revolution and women's rights. That's next time on Mainly History.